Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Craig S., Jackie A., Paul M., and Cindy W. We've got a returning guest and a new company on the show today. Mr. Ian Stalker is here with us. Ian is president and CEO of Pasifino Gold, a gold-focused developer explorer that has partial interest in the Dugby Gold Project, Liberia, West Africa. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol VEIN and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol EFRGF. Ian, welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? I'm very well, Andrew, and it's nice to be talking to you again. Well, Ian, before we get into the intro of Pasifino to our audience, the last time you were on the program, you were talking to us about Helium One, among other things. Can you just give us just a quick update on how Helium One is doing and how progress is going over there? Delighted to. Um, it's actually a great little company these days. We've been very fortunate in having quite a lot of support in the marketplace. Andrew, people have heard our story and it's resonated uh, to the extent that we've had um, a significant rise in the four months since we listed in the AIM market in London. We listed at a share price of 2.8 pennies and we're now trading sort of 22 plus pennies per share. So it's been well received and I think it's been well received because the guys have been getting the message out about not only the supply and demand issues associated with helium and why our project can fill that gap and in fact more than fill that gap. It's a very large scale project, but it's also because we've been on the ground in Tanzania. Our CEO went over there, re-established the company in many ways in terms of working on the ground and their first piece of work, which was an infill seismic survey that we did in one kilometer line spacing, uh, much uh, thicker or much denser spacing than the previous uh, seismic had been done. That information has now been received. We're in the process of analyzing it, but I can tell you from a press release that just went out yesterday that already we've identified not only that some of the existing drill targets that we have uh, previously known about, but we found one or two extras who've moved up the, the priority chart in terms of having a look at them. And so it's been very exciting. And, and we've also signed a drilling contract and the driller will be starting work uh, towards the early part of next month, i.e. less than a month away. So the whole momentum has been building uh, Andrew, and, and and it's caught the attention of the marketplace, and and so it should because helium is not a foolish uh, commodity. It's actually a very important commodity, with over 50% of all helium used being uh, used in the medical side of things. And these days, of course, that's a, a key element for all of us. So no, helium one's gone well, and it's well worthwhile uh, keeping your eye on it. Well, it's good to have that team making progress over there, and. Some of our audience followed that because we, of course, talked about Helium One. I think we spoke about that, uh, boy, it was over well over a year ago now. So, well, Ian, let's get into the bulk of the conversation here, which is Pasifino. Maybe just go ahead and start off here by giving us a quick view of the gold market and the price action at this point. Look, I'm no expert in the gold market, and I can give you a view that 
you know, I perceive from my position, and that is that the gold price has been somewhat erratic in the last couple of months or so, a little bit softer in terms of pricing. But right now we're getting very, I think there's more and more uh, understanding of what this potential inflation is going to be exhibited in the next few months. And if the expectation uh, is in fact validated that inflation does start to play a large role as a consequence of you know government actions over the last few months with COVID, et cetera, even the last year, I guess, um, then there's a fighting chance, a very good chance that the gold price could move north. And in that case, you know, companies like Pasofino who've got a good inventory of gold already in place should benefit from it. So I, I think I think although we've been in the doldrums to some extent uh, in the last two months, I think there's a, a real opportunity for gold to consolidate and move upwards, perhaps not aggressively, but upwards in an appropriate path as the uh, next few weeks take part. With Pasofino, I think there's been some sentiment issues around the broad gold market with Pasofino, and then I think there's been a few company-specific issues that have contributed to the uh, share performance. Give us just a quick overview of Pasofino here, and then we'll go ahead and get into the details. All right. Um, the reason we got involved in it is that there was a, a historical resource uh, associated with Pasofino, which is a Liberian project, West Africa, Liberia. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about Liberia shortly. But there was a historical resource, and it was substantial. Um, we updated that resource towards the end of September last year, and we issued a 43101 compliant resource, which highlights that we've got 2.3 million in the indicated category already at 1.51, and we've got 1.3 million ounces in the unfair category at 1.47 grams per tonne. So there you have a wonderful starting point that should give you an automatic valuation because, you know, peer group comparisons tell you how much an ounce of gold is worth in the ground. But it gave us the starting point, Andrew, to say, what do we want to do now? Well, what we wanted to do was twofold. One, we wanted to start a study because we felt that the ounces that we had were sufficient to build a robust project on. Um, and we've been busy with that since the beginning of January this year. Um, that's been run by a company called DRA out of South Africa, uh, who've got relevant experience in Liberia. And what that's telling us is that with the existing resource numbers I've just quoted, we have the opportunity of producing gold at circa 200,000 ounces of gold per year um, at a Competitive, all in sustained cost. We don't have the final numbers yet, but we know that it's a highly competitive number and that the uh, operation in terms of open pit mining would have a stripping ratio of three to one. So three key elements I've just mentioned there. One is a very benign stripping ratio for an open pit environment in West Africa in particular. Two is that the grade at 1.51 is significantly higher than a range of our peer groups, and I mean a lot of them. And then thirdly, the production level of 200,000 leads us to a very competitive economic situation and a very attractive production number. So that aspect of the business has been moving on, and we will actually complete a PEA, an updated PEA, um, and that should be out first before the rest of the study. That should be out um, hopefully the end of this month, early part of June. So that, that's one thing we've been working hard towards. The second one was that the property that we uh, got ourselves involved with has actually got a footprint of 2,600 plus square kilometers 
it's a huge track of land in a part of the world that just hasn't had the exploration dollars spent on it. Uh, when money came to West Africa, Ghana happened to have the opportunity because of existing mines to get it moving first, and it was Ashanti Goldfields that drove the Ghana investment, and I, I worked for Ashanti for 12 years, so I know it very well, um, and it, as a consequence, know the West African uh, area very well as well. Um, but that's where the first money went, and then the second lot went to Mali when um, Anglo Gold at the time built the Sadiola mine, then a little bit moved down to Burkina Faso, some went into Cote d'Ivoire next door, um, Ivory Coast, some money went into Guinea, we built a mine in Guinea um, called Seguri, uh, and there's been quite a lot of money now spent in that country, but Liberia missed out. So the endowment, we believe, is there is significant and it's a case of unlocking it. So the second aspect of our business was to say, guys, if we've got that amount of ounces, the 2.3 uh, indicated, the 1.3 inferred, how much more growth is there? And so we started drilling, uh, and we only just started in the month of April, we started drilling these resources in more detail. Um, First of all, we wanted to move some of the inferred into indicated for the study purposes in the Duke Bay. And by doing that, Andrew, we found a little bit more gold than we had expected, which is good. And then we started looking at the Tucson part of the Duke Bay deposit, and we started stepping out from that because we believe there's an opportunity to uh, increase the gold inventory from that resource area by upwards of a million plus. So the two aspects have been ticking along now with pace. Um, one is the increase in resources and the better definition of what exists. And then the second one is the study phase. So it's a, a very exciting time and a real opportunity in terms of investment timing because we have been under the bushel. We have not been able, Andrew, to get our press releases out because the first thing we had to do with the money we raised was improve the infrastructure, in particular the access to the camp. It did exist, but there were 23 bridges that had to be rehabilitated. Uh, and, you know, you, you don't have the sort of equipment that you have in, say, the U.S. or Canada to go and repair bridges. So it's done much more manually and uh, with limited equipment. We had to do that. We had to improve the road. It was uh, 50 kilometers of dirt road. And we had to do that during the rainy season. We had to get the camp upgraded. We had to get communications upgraded. We had to get the core shed up upgraded. We had to get first aid and catering up upgraded and that we did and that all took us that period of time up to the end of March so only in April have we got the drill rigs turning um, and they're now turning and we're going to see uh, in the next short while Andrew our uh, regular supply of information to the marketplace and I think you and I have had a discussion before that junior companies sort of live or die by their press releases. So for the first time we're in a position now to start motivating these press releases and they are going to be good press releases because it's all about uh, added ounces and um, conversion to an indicated resource. So that aspect I'm very comfortable with now and it's, it's what makes us a very attractive company, Andrew. Ian, thanks for the overview. Lots of different issues there and I think that the market has seen where some of these unexpected costs have come in, things have been delayed. You guys just did a marketed offering here at about seven cents a share which will put the company at a pro forma of about 441 million shares outstanding post offering. The company will have about 10 million in cash is what I figure. How far will this get you to actually deliver on your guys' goals here? Because I think that the market has missed it while you guys have a lot of events that are supposed to come out between now and year end. And will the DFS still be right around year end? Yes, look, I think 
we're probably better now talking about the DFS being in the early part of 2022. I think that's realistic because we have been slower to get out of the traps. Um, I wouldn't say we've been delayed. We, we, we expected, you know, a reasonable time to get the infrastructure in place, Andrew, but the, the rains, you know, just Sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're rather unfortunate. In this case, the rains were heavier than they've ever been for a long while. Uh, maybe we can blame climate change for that. But irrespective, we've got to manage it and get on with it. So I do think the DFS, you know, early part of 2022 is realistic. But the, the real excitement, I think, is is the PEA, because that, that will come out, as I say, end of this month. Um, and although the DFS will be next year, I think every investor will have a snapshot pretty early on to see what this project economics looked like. And although they're not to the definitive study level, they'll be sufficiently accurate, I think, to give a very good picture and a lot of encouragement for the value in the ground and the ability for us to deliver from that value in the ground. And then we've got at the same time, the exploration drilling kicking off. So, you know, I, I think we are, it's a good time to have a good look at Passive. You know, I really believe that. I think the last offering we did, as you see at seven cents, we it didn't take long to fill that book, as you can imagine, Andrew. It really was a steal at seven cents, and so we we completed it. And I think I understand, and and I hope I'm correct in this, that we should be able to finalize everything this week. Yeah, we're looking forward to seeing that. Along with between the distance of the PEA and the DFS, speak to the prospectivity here because I think that's where maybe some of the surprise really lies, where the DFS could be substantially different from the PEA if you intend on keeping on this track. Talk about the prospectivity component of expanding this resource and possibly boosting that production profile in a comfortable mid-200 range after the DFS comes out. Correct. So, Andrew, we've got... we started off by looking at what we thought was the easier areas to find new ounces. And most gold mining guys will tell you that the best place to find ounces is next to where you've already found them. So we've got two known areas uh, within the Dugby project. One is called Dugby F and the other one is called Tucson. Dugby F happens to have a significant amount of inferred resources in it. So we drilled that initially just because access was more available uh, as soon as we got the rigs in. And we have been getting infill results from that drilling. That's given us that quality of, of ounce. We haven't, that, that was the purpose behind it. And therefore we've got a better quality in terms of indicated, which has a better value in terms of an investment criteria. But at the same time, we've been pleasantly surprised in that that drilling within the Duke BF has all, also highlighted a, a mineralized area that hadn't been picked up previously. And, you know, we're optimistic that there's a few extra ounces. And when I say a few extra ounces, it could be 100,000 plus coming into that resource. So it, it gives you a better pit. It reduces the stripping ratio and gives you a much more likely production scenario of that 200,000 because it's in the indicated category. You can, you can feel a lot more certain. But in the Tucson part, of the resource. When the guys finished drilling there back in 2014, they left it open uh, along strike and slightly down dip. And so our drilling there, which has commenced, as I mentioned, is really to pick up the extra ounces just in Tucson. And there's, a, you know, we've got, if you combine them, which we're not allowed to do in, in Bifold 3101, but 2.3 plus 1.3 takes you up to 3.6, 3.7 million ounces. 
we think we can add very comfortably another sort of 1.4, 1.5 and take us up towards the 5 million. So that's a, a huge resource. And those, that drilling, as you say, Andrew, will be complete probably by the end of this year, but probably too late to get into the DFS. So the DFS will work on the existing resources. Um, but going forward, you're 100% right that this story may change because instead of having 200,000 ounces a year, it might be more optimum to go for a 250 or even more. Because remember, we have this huge land package of 2,560 square kilometers. The historically over $75 million um, has been spent in the project. So that's historical spend is significantly higher than actually our market cap, which is a, an interesting uh, comparison. But that 75 million was spent in developing new targets. And uh, there's a lot of work that has been done in identifying that set up and we've got priority on those targets so even outside Tucson there's another range of targets we will get to you know over the next 12 months or so but priority is in Tucson because it's part of the typical resource base and they're going to be the best cheaper ounces to bring in because they will immediately inventory in, inventory flow into the the total resources that this little production plant can handle. So very exciting times for us and definitely growth within the resources is something that should be expected. Okay, Ian, let's come back to just a few other items here before we get into some more details on the ownership sure. and some future development scenarios, et cetera. But can you just speak to, we covered where the cash is approximately and also the approximate shares uh, pro forma of this offering. Major shareholders here, can you speak to any major shareholders and please include yourself? Would it be safe to say that you own your shares pretty close to this current price level? Oh, indeed. I came into the, this last financing um, with a decent check. Uh, so to maintain my own ownership, which is, is, is certainly uh, within the total management and insiders, we've probably got 25, 30%, maybe even slightly more than that. So I've maintained my ownership, make no mistake about that. I, I actually think this is just, it's one of those things that just hasn't been picked up. And it hasn't been picked up, Andrew, because we've not had the exposure like this. Uh, in any shape or form because we've had to get the infrastructure in place first. But um, we have had quite a few institutions that came in. Um, there is a New York fund called Libra um, that came in for a substantial check and they had with them a, a well-known high net worth who I, I don't think it's appropriate to mention his name, but he came in with Libra and they were a big solid check. Siemens Capital out of Boston um, who were in previously, they again followed their money um, and we had some money come in from a third institution in uh, New York. And so we've got, of the money we raised, there's probably about half of it came in from institutions, which kind of tells you that, you know, they can see the opportunity as well. And they, and they put a lot of time and effort into analyzing it before they come in. But the previous guys who uh, owned the stock, a lot of them just understood that there was a huge opportunity here because at that kind of pricing, let's get moving on it. So we had huge support from existing shareholders who are, you know, well known within the mining industry. They are professional people, which should give viewers and listeners to this, Andrew, a level of comfort. That's meant that we, um, we've we netted off after um, after fees, etc., just over $8 million Canadian dollars. Um, added to what we've got in the Treasury, will probably leave us about um, end of April, probably about $9 million in Treasury. And that should be more than enough to keep us uh, rolling along with all the work that we've been doing until um, sort of, uh, towards the latter part of the year, to be quite honest. And I think by that time, we'll have already motivated such an amount of information that I would be very surprised 
if our share price didn't react to the information that's coming forward and move in a, a very positive way. And if you look at a peer group, Andrew, and I've, I've got a peer group comparison slide that I use when I do my presentations, you know, the, the things that stick out to you is grade in an open pit scenario. The average grade within the West African developers, uh, explorers is circa one gram per tonne. Well, we're at 1.5. Even the South American ones, like say Belo Sun and a range of them down there in, in the Brazils and the uh, Colombias, etc., their average grade is just point just over one gram as well. So we compare very, very favorably with the quality of gold we've got on the ground. Interestingly as well, Andrew, unlike a lot of these uh, companies that we've been talking about, which are perhaps in the Amazon or they're in landlocked countries such as um, Burkina Faso and Mali in, in West Africa. We are uh, in a country, Liberia, which is not landlocked. And um, the convenience of only being 70 kilometers from the deep water port of Grenville should not be overlooked when it comes to unlocking value here in this project. We can get back and forward to Grenville now the road's been upgraded, we can get back and forward there in a matter of hours. And, and that short distance gives us a decided competitive advantage in an OPEX point of view, an operating cost point of view, and in a CAPEX point of view, because one of your big costs in operations and in building a plant is the cost of getting material to and from your site. Uh, I can give you an example where we were buying cement in uh, the port of Conakry in Guinea, and the cost of cement landed uh, was X amount. And by the time we got it to uh, our mine operation at Seguri, 880 kilometers away, um, it was double the price just because of the cost of getting it there and the time it takes. So I think we've got a distinct advantage when, again, you look at the peer group in West Africa and some of the areas in South America that are you know, not on the beaten track. Because infrastructure is a big challenge everywhere you go in Africa. And only having 70 kilometers of road to get there is, is a bonus for us. But that's just an add-on to already a, you know, a pretty calm, investment-friendly country. Uh, of Liberia. We have an MDA in, uh, in agreement already with between ourselves and the government. And so when I start looking at those, that added to the other commentary about resource growth uh, and project development, Andrew, it really becomes the time to, to put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. And that's what the investors did when we did this last raise. Ian, we've got at the grade standpoint, you're right. I mean, it is the grade's good. This is off the radar in comparison to the peers. Uh, Orchid Gold being, I think, the closest competitor on grade, which is a whole different mm -hmm. jurisdiction, a whole different set of challenges, much greater than yours. Just looking at it here, the port's interesting to point out because it's export, import, everything comes in through there. It's not far away. You've got the road. You're going to have some satellite deposits. There's no doubt in my mind that that's going to happen. But talk mm -hmm. about the topography at the project, mineable radius in terms of you know using existing facilities when you guys do build this out. You know, how amenable is it to how far you can mine satellite deposits and then also speak to the water and power at site? Okay, let's start with the sort of um, satellite deposits concept because there will be satellite deposits. We already know from some historical drilling that there was an indication, for example, at an area called SACOR where 15 of the 18 holes that were drilled came back with decent mineralization over decent thicknesses. 
Um, so we know that there's the potential for that. So we've concentrated, remember, between Tucson and Dugby, which is effectively the Dugby project, there's a gap of four kilometres. We think some of that will infill anyway, but that will be the basis of mine number one. And we would look at satellite deposits within upwards of 10 kilometres from that, because the, the trucking distance at that kind of range is not too difficult. Uh, and most of the so similar grades that we'd expect to what we have in Dukeby would carry that cost very comfortably. So there's a, a, just a very clear area of where immediate satellite pits could come from, and we will concentrate on that once we've moved out of the Tucson area. But it is hugely opportunistic. Um, we, the last thing we want to do is blow our brains out and just drilling everywhere and anywhere at the moment, much though it's tempting. We want to concentrate on, on adding ounces, valuable ounces to what we know exists and getting the study uh, moved along so that you can see a near-term production scenario and therefore a cash flow for further exploration. But if you look at that, I'd have to say that once we build this first mine, I believe there's a real opportunity of one, two more mines as we move along our, our whole exploration campaign in a similar size and a similar setting to what we mine number one will be. So it's a real opportunity um, uh, as a first mover in Liberia in an area that's just been underexplored. It's not lack of mineralization, it's just lack of drilling uh, and understanding of the ore bodies that exist there. So we really have a, a, an upside in that regard and, and hopefully that explains the kind of production profile we kick off at, but the real opportunity going forward of more resources and the potential for another mine or two. Ian, talk about the water. I know that the storm water is no problem, but uh, talk about the water. Yeah. So, and that's right. Thanks for reminding me, Andrew. So, um, the there are plenty of water resources near. There's several rivers not too far away from us and they are all year round water courses so they don't dry up or anything like that uh, and so the opportunity of extracting water for process needs isn't a challenge and you're right because you did ask me about topography in general in, the, in that area it is a high rainfall area it's the rainforest area of west africa which is probably pretty well known and not dissimilar to what we've seen previously in places like ghana um, where we've had to work as well and, to, and even in some South American areas. So we're familiar with the amount of rain, but it is an area where you get rain and when you get rain, you get mud and that kind of has to be managed properly. But we, we have the capability. So we've got water in the area and what was undertaken, I think significantly in 2015, was a World Bank sponsored study undertaken by a recognized engineering group called Knight Peace Old, um, which are one of the guys who have a very bankable name in the mining industry. And they looked on behalf of the World Bank for the government of Liberia at hydropower opportunities in our vicinity. And they concluded a report that came out in 2016 uh, that said there is an opportunity of building a hydropower station not too far from us that could be a supply for us and the cost of hydropower would be circa four cents per kilowatt hour. So that gives you the potential for hydropower. At the moment, there isn't any reticulation there. So our project uh, will be developed on the basis of us generating our own power, which will be a mixture of uh, HFO supplied um, generators uh, and supplemented by some solar stroke um, wind farming and even offcuts. The area we're working in, Andrew, is a heavily forested area. There's a lot of timber that's extracted and of course they just take the nice 
piece of timber that is the long, straight, thick part, and they leave branches and they leave stumps and they leave offcuts, etc. So there's an opportunity too, which we're looking at, at taking that leftover waste wood and converting it into a little power station, generating its own power. So we've got base power, which will be HFO. We've got supplementary power, which will come from solar plus, I think, these offcuts. And then in the medium term, we are working with the government, who've been very supportive of us in pushing on this hydropower opportunity. So we will have power. We just would like to get the cheapest one we can because it gives us a better margin. And that's what we'll work with the government to do. But the base case will be attractive as it is. Okay, so talk about the interest here at this point, because this is basically a joint venture between Hummingbird and Pasifino, with also the government of Liberia with a carried interest as well. And talk about Pasifino's responsibility in the future, should this get developed out, who will become operator, the pro rata CapEx requirements. And then finally, I think the market wants to know, can Pasifino increase their interest further in this project? Okay. All right. It's a very clear uh, arrangement we have with Hummingbird, but let me start first of all with the government of Liberia. Um, the agreement we have in the mineral development agreement is that they have a free carry 10% for life of mine. And that is pretty standard within the environment of West Africa and is non uh, not too intrusive and certainly manageable from an overall project perspective. And knowing that the government is a partner in it has certain advantages for us. Um, the other side of the Mineral Development Agreement, of course, which is worthwhile noting, is that um, what we also got back from the government is a recognition that should the price of gold fall below $1,500 an ounce, then they are uh, enabled to take 50% at least off the uh, import duty associated with hydrocarbons, i.e. diesel, petrol, lubricants, etc. And that has a huge impact in an open pit miner because fuel costs in an open pit are about 40 to 45% of your overall cost per tonne moved. So if we can get that advantage, it makes us, a, again, uh, a very strong competitor and cost value increases significantly. So although the government's got 10% carry, in fairness to the government, we've negotiated, which is cast into statute and law, this agreement where those kind of benefits accrue, as does other things such as, you know, import duty being tax-free, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a very good binding agreement with the government, but they are 10% owners. So then moving on to the, the hummingbird Pasofino arrangement, what Pasofino has is the option to complete the definitive feasibility study by the expenditure of about $10 million over a period of two years. Um, so there's plenty of time to go in that. We're not in any way constrained or pushed on it. At the completion of the DFS, uh, we become the clear owner, and, and I already believe we are the clear owner, but the clear owner of 49% of the company. So we have 49% equivalent value of, let's say, the, the ounces that are already referred to. But equally importantly, Andrew, at that stage and um, submitting the DFS, Hummingbird are put that they should, they have to put their shares into 
the Pasofina vehicle. And for that 51% that they remain off the project ownership, they get obviously the equivalent equity. So the equity increases as we bring into Pasofino the 100% ownership of the project. Pasofino is the operator now and remains the operator going forward. Um, I think there's an acceptance that we have the knowledge and the ability to deliver not only the project in terms of a DFS, but also through a construction and operational phase as well. So it remains the owner and operator going forward. And then it's important, I think, to note, Andrew, that when you reach that phase of making a decision to construct, obviously the capital costs of the plant, which we think uh, we don't have definitive numbers yet, but we think are in an order of magnitude of 300, 320 million dollars. We think that obviously some of that will money would come in either debt or equity, probably an arrangement of both. And obviously if it's equity at that stage, you dilute every shareholder at that time because there's greater value to be achieved. So there'll be no huge significant shareholder going forward if there was any concern about that. It'll be much more equitable in terms of overall ownership. I appreciate you clarifying that. And so I think it was important for the market to understand that mm -hmm. as you guys advance this forward, that eventually Hummingbird essentially comes in as equity. Hummingbird is also a large contributor to the CapEx, given their interest in the project, and that that all becomes a Pasifino vehicle going forward if successful. Correct. And Ian, talk about the permits, the regulatory approvals at this point. What's your expectation on ease of permitting? And once decisions are made, uh, how long will it take for these permits to get in place? The main one there is the environmental assessment and therefore the environmental permitting. So we've been working on the ESIA, the Environmental Statement and Impact Assessment, uh, since the beginning of the year, maybe even slightly before that. And that's been uh, an enhancement of what work was done previously. So there was a submission to the government in 2015, I believe it was, um, where the government saw the environmental impact that existed at that time for what was purported to be a mine that would be built, and they gave permission. So for us, it is a case of building up in that because we're obviously mining at a higher rate, for example, and we're doing things slightly differently in terms of the processing, but not a lot. Um, so the changes to the previous environmental impact work are reasonably small. We're just bringing them up to date being 2021 rather than 2015. Um, and we expect to complete that ESIA in a timely manner to coincide with the DFS work. So we would hope that the ESIA could be completed before the year end and that permitting based on government rules, regulations should be issued to us three months thereafter, if not before. So we should have in our hands, certainly in the early part of 2022, an environmental position um, that allows us to go ahead, construct and operate the mine. Remember, we have this MDA, the Mineral Development Agreement, already in place with the government. So the structure is there for us to build the mine. That permit is there for the building. It's just the ESIA that has to be revalidated. And, and we're well in hand with that, Andrew. And I appreciate that and a relatively straightforward process. And of course, the uh, the timing there is very respectful and expedited. Oh, yes. So, oh, yes. Look, the, the government's very supportive. And, and you know, you, in the world we live in, Andrew, to get inward investment is a huge thing for any country. And particularly if you're an African country that's still developing your 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 infrastructure and your you know way of life. This would be notable. This project here, this would be potentially, if successful, this would be, I believe, the second major gold mine 
Yes, it would be. Um, the first one was built in 2014, 2015, but I think it'd be the, certainly a, a larger producer and a more profitable gold mine significantly. And so the government would not only get the benefit of you know, the income tax that comes from the employment of, of uh, Liberians within the project, um, the benefit of um, knock-on to infrastructure, to transport, to you name it, um, they would also get the benefit, I think, of a corporate tax on some of the profits when we reach that stage of operation. So for the government, it's a big bonus. Is it safe to say that the all-in sustaining cost on this project would be likely under a thousand an ounce? Yes, that would be my guess. I have to add. Yeah, that sounds good. ESG efforts um, increasingly mm-hmm. important, as you know, and of course you know ESG by other reiterations such as CSR and. It's been going on for many, many decades that good management teams have always practiced ESG efforts, but it's a little more formalized at this point. Anything you'd like to specifically say about ESG efforts, I just want to point it towards, I think, where the important levels are, and that's local community and government relations. Yes, Andrew, you're 100% right. Over the years that I've been involved in this industry, the acceptance that the local communities have a vital role to play has grown. Um, maybe we saw it before, but now everyone has to see it because it's more and more effectively legislated. And my experience within certainly the African content and elsewhere for that matter, including um, Papua New Guinea in, in recent years, is that to get a successful mine in place, you start by getting the support of the local communities who then reach out to the provincial authorities and you get their support. And then, of course, you immediately go up thereafter to the national authorities. But you've got to get them all on side with you. You cannot have one without the other. Now, we're kind of fortunate in where we are in Liberia in that we don't have a significantly high population. The whole country is only 4.7 million people, of which the bulk of that, more than half of them, live in the capital city of Monrovia. So where we are in the south, they are uh, relatively sparsely populated. And so we don't have a major cost but in respect of what size the cost is, what you have to do is make sure that the benefits are properly shared with the communities. And we have, we engaged SRK, who are a well-known name uh, within this ESG type work. Uh, they're working on behalf of us and with us and making sure that the message of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and the benefits to the community is understood and that the community expectations are taken on board and we manage that within our own development of the way forward. Um, We are honestly, you know, you couldn't get better supporters of ESG, I think, than ourselves. So one of the things that lives with me, Andrew, is when I was in Ghana for that period of time, it was always a reminder, particularly as an expatriate, you're there as an invited guest. Um, And at some stage, you could be uninvited. So you have to manage your P's and Q's with the local communities, and quite rightly, you know, they've, they, they've had a range of challenges over, you know, many, many years, decades of years. Now's an opportunity for skills to be transferred, an opportunity for good employment, real employment to be generated. That brings huge benefits, not only to the employee, but to the employee's family, to the area the employee lives and work in. And it's not just us. The, the, the multiplier in, in Africa is something like 12 to 1, maybe even 16 to 1. So the, the knock-on of just having one guy employed is huge within the community. So we we work very hard and we've got very strong policies advocating for ESG and moving it forward. Not just the communities, but also the environment. 
you, you have to take ESG with the, the environment as well. And both of those we recognize as priorities and we, and we are working hard to manage them. Ian, absolutely. And I like to throw another E in front of the ESG and I like to use the word economic in the first mm -hmm. part of it uh, because that drives everything else in my view. But let me ask you this too, because I think the audience needs some clarification here. And don't punish me too much for picking these countries here, but let's use <laughs> Namibia as a tier one jurisdiction in Africa, which I think you could probably mm -hmm. agree. And mm -hmm. then let's take Upper Kina Fasal as kind of a tier three type country in Africa. Where does Liberia come in? Because Liberia is unique and that a lot of the audience probably doesn't know much about Liberia one, but then they also automatically associated this region with typically tier three jurisdictions that are unsafe, unstable, et cetera. But Liberia has some unique features in that it actually it's more stable. It has a predominant one religion. Talk about that between the scale I gave you. Okay, and, and, and Andrew, it's all kind of relative, as you can imagine. I can give you a view, but it's not in any way uh, scientific, if you like, but I can give you the anecdotes that I understand, because if I take Namibia, and you're quite right, I've worked there, and it's a great country to work in, but Namibia is one of the driest countries in the world. So although it's a good place to work, you're challenged with water. And remember, we've already talked about water where we are in Liberia. So there's, there's pluses and minus even in the infrastructure and the ability to work because you have to start with the resource and the 1.5 grams per tonne, the 3 to 1 stripping ratio, the access to water and its proximity to port. You know, all that is an added advantage within the country you're at. So Namibia, good country. I like it. Um, it has its challenges, I can assure you. I, you know, I, I won't uh, wax lyrical about experiences, but it's, it, it, at least they have the rule of law. And we seem to have the same thing in Liberia. So if you compare Liberia now to the rest of that West African environment, which is probably what I guess I'm getting to, Andrew, you're right. The challenges that are being faced in Burkina Faso, not I think last week or maybe the week before that, there was a, a few people that were killed um, uh, in Burkina Faso. Uh, and there's been a, a recent history of, of problems in that country from a security point of view. Uh, Mali went through a coup d'etat uh, not so long ago. And again, there's a history there of the uh, Al-Qaeda insurgents, for example, disrupting general life within certainly the northwestern part of the country. So those those areas, and they're landlocked, make no mistake about that, they're landlocked as well, but those areas have a level of instability partly because of, of religion, because if there's a religious divide, it's convenient for people to sort of use that as an excuse for uh, causing a bit of problems. And uh, you rightly pointed out, Liberia, small country, 4.7 million. The bulk of the population, 92 plus, happen to be uh, followers of a single religion. In this case, it's Christianity. So it's much more calm. And, and, and you've got a situation where the likes of the World Bank and the IFC are present in Monrovia. And they're there to help the country maintain that stability because they're aware of what instability exists in West Africa. Of course they are. Uh, and they're creating circumstances where their presence does help the stability of Monrovia. And the other thing I mentioned there about landlocked countries, Burkina Faso and Mali, and there's a range of them, Niger, uh, for example. One of the challenges most of the mining companies would own up to, if you ask them, is it's always a battle uh, in terms of administration to handle movement of material and people, if you like, between countries. You know, there's the um, 
rules and regulations and paperwork and perhaps some of the systems in, in parts of Africa haven't quite got to where we are in the uh, in the likes of Canada and in the US in terms of computers and assisted programs and so it's very manual and that can take a long time and the challenge with time is that time equals money when you're running a mine both in constructing it and operating it so that advantage of just being 70 kilometers away from the deep water port single set of customs that we can access very quickly is a big bonus for this operation going forward. Ian, I appreciate that and putting Liberia where it needs to be on the map and, and where it falls into these tiers and far as jurisdictions. I want to switch gears real quick as we start to wrap up here. The Roger mm -hmm. Gold project, a non-core project being sold. Talk about the status of the sale and when you expect that to close. Um, we are, I hope, in what we would classify as final negotiations. Um, so we're tending towards closing it certainly this month of May and probably early in May if we're lucky. But there's, as always, there's a few things to dot and a few uh, T's to cross, um, but we're busy with that and that would release a further amount of funds into the Pasofino Treasury, which would be even more uh, for us to use in those earlier commentaries we made regarding the work that we've got up and running, four drills running at the moment, the work that we've got up and running and the information that comes from it. So that's moving along and you're quite right, it is non-core for us, a uh, good little project but is, 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 is available for consolidation in that area of Quebec and Canada. Ian, so you set the bar pretty high with K92 over the past few years. You were the lead, one of the lead guys, you and your team with K92 since, uh, I want to say, going back to 2015 or 2016, roughly. How do you expect to do a similar repeat of success with Pasifino, and can Pasifino set the bar higher? Well, first of all, I, I, I remain associated with K92. I am the lead director in K92, but you're right, I was the CEO and one of the founders from 2014 and took it through to uh, late 2017 before I handed over to the current CEO, a guy called John Lewins, who's done a fantastic job for us in the operation of that mine. And the difference, of course, is not just country, um, PNG stroke Liberia, but the big difference is K92 is a high-grade underground mine. And that high grade is just such a wonderful gift. We've got an in-situ resource in PNG of uh, somewhere around 11, 12 grams per tonne. So you have to compare that with 1.5. But the 1.5 is open pitable, not underground. So do I believe that Pasifina will be a success? Yes, I do, Andrew. Um, will it have the market cap of K92? I don't think so. K92 is one of those extremely unusual circumstances where it keeps on giving. I, giving. I think the resource there will grow significantly and it'll be the same sort of grade, plus or minus. So it really is a sweet mine. But Pasifino, make no mistake about it. We have a good inventory. It will grow and it will be a substantial mine in its own right. And open pits, you know, I, I've been brought up by the knowledge that um, I'd, in some ways I'd rather be a sunshine miner, which is what they call open pit guys, compared to working underground, because it is simpler. You know, you see things in an immediate time frame, whereas working in an underground mine, it takes longer to, you know, go and see the problem, deal with the problem, manage the problem, etc. It's all doable, and you put the infrastructure, you put the management team in place, but the open pits are just that little bit easier and lend themselves to a growth story quicker because you don't have a lot of rock to move in terms of 
uh, underground development and you're in an open pit scenario where really it's enough moving project, a civil engineering project. So it is simpler and I, I do believe that as we go forward here, that Pasifino uh, market cap will move in a positive direction and all of us who are in it just now, not only for building the mine, but we'll also see a return on investment that is very, very satisfactory. Appreciate that, Ian, and very good points on the K92 comparison, and potentially Pasifino can make it up with district scale and also some size here with resource expansion. So I think there's potentials on both sides here, and of course, uh, valuation is a big component here as well. Finishing up, potential investors who are on the sidelines listening here, market cap of the company stands about 30 million Canadian post-offering, roughly. Mm -hmm. What would you say to them at this stage and at current price levels? Why should they consider Pasifino today? I see we're trading today at roughly eight and a half, nine cents. So we're up from the seven cent listing. The seven cent raise that we did was a no brainer. And I say that quite honestly. It wasn't hard for a Scotsman, believe it or not, to put his hand in his pocket and actually put some money into the investment. Uh, and you know, that's always a challenge from guys like me from that part of the world. So if I believe in it, and the guys who come in obviously believe in it. At the eight and a half, nine cent level, it really can only go one way. It can't go down any, Andrew. It's just impossible. It can, I say that touching wood at the same time, of course. It's just, it's, it's impossible to have less value. It can only go one way. And the work that we've implemented and the expectation I have in terms of numbers coming out, I would suggest that this is in a, a one direction and that's an upward direction until we get a, a realized value that's appropriate in the marketplace. So Simple great time enough. to get in. Simple enough. Very interesting here. Best way for the investors to reach out to the company? I think we have a web page. There's a couple of names in there. There's myself, and I, I do my best to answer most calls. Uh, my apologies if someone has phoned me and I haven't done it, but I do my best. And then we have uh, an investor relations chap called Graham Donahue, who's on the uh, web page, etc. He's more than uh, happy to make himself available to give as much information as, as needed by would-be investors to get them over the line. Ian, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Looking forward to strong results coming out of Pasifino and looking forward to updating in the future. Thanks, Andrew.